2: Give the damn if Jeb Bush endorses Ted Cruz. That's a strike against you, ask me. You know, in person he's nice, but now he's gone crazy. Look, I wouldn't go into a black church and start screaming, White Lives Matter.
0: Hello and welcome to TrumpCast. I'm Jacob Weisberg. After the San Bernardino shootings, Donald Trump proposed a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States. This week, after the devastating events in Brussels, Trump doubled down on the idea, stating that he would not allow certain people to come into this country without absolute perfect documentation. Today, I talk with Ed Hussein, a former Islamic extremist himself, about the effects of Trump's views on the Muslim community. But first, Let's check back in and see what the Donald's been up to on Twitter.
2: Lion Ted Cruz just used a picture of Melania from a GQ shoot in his ad. Be careful, Lion Ted, or I will spill the beans on your wife. Low energy, Jeb Bush just endorsed a man he truly hates, Lion Ted Cruz, honestly. I can't blame Jeb in that I drove him into oblivion. Lion Ted Cruz denied that he had anything to do with the GQ model photo post of Melania. That's why we call him Lion Ted. I think having Jeb's endorsement hurts Lion Ted. Jeb spent more than $150 million and got nothing. I spent a fraction of that and I'm first. Lion Ted Cruz steals foreign policy from me and lines from Michael Douglas, just another dishonest politician.
0: I'm joined now by Ed Hussein. Ed is a senior advisor at the Center on Religion and Geopolitics, a London-based think tank. He's also the author of The Islamist, Why I Became an Islamic Fundamentalist, What I Saw Inside, and Why I Left. Hi there, Ed. Hi, Jacob. Thanks for joining us today. So before we get into Trump, just give our listeners a a slightly longer version of that story that you hint at in your book title.
1: Well, uh, I mean, I was born and raised in London, and around the 1990s here, when just Two hours away from Heathrow Airport, Britain's main airport, you had Bosnia where there were white, blonde, blue-eyed Muslims being killed en masse and Europe was standing by and doing very little, and there was a deeply embedded culture of them and us. Um, We had said, or we'd grown up at least listening to our teachers saying, never again after the Holocaust. Um, And there it was happening in, in, in Europe all over again. And I think that sense of being forced to choose about our own identity, whether we were Europeans or whether we were Muslims, or whether we were both or one or the other, led to extremist groups in our midst saying that, look, you will never belong that Europe isn't your home and you ought to be a Muslim and only a Muslim in the most extreme sense. And I think that message of uh, jihad in Bosnia resonated for thousands of us here in the UK in the 1990s. So there was a compelling draw to an extremist organization. I mean, I joined two organizations, I spent five years in them, and eventually I left. But one of the reasons I left was coming from a mainstream Muslim household, but also traveling in the Middle East and meeting normal, mainstream, traditional Muslims led me to distinguish between Islamist extremism and ordinary Muslims. And therefore, I don't want others to make that mistake of conflating the two and thereby empowering the extremist fringe. So the book is a story of uh, of, of you know, coming to age. I mean, um, a generation before me came of age through communism. And I think my generation came of age through Islamism. But most of us come out of it and... Uh, I. I it, the book was a was it was an attempt at sharing that testimony in, in public.
0: Edward, speaking just after the Brussels attacks, does this help Trump? Does this play into his hands in terms of arguing that uh, Muslims in general are a kind of planetary threat to the United States?
1: I think it does reinforce his narrative, Jacob, but what we're seeing across Europe, and those images were broadcast yesterday uh, on on television sets, is that you're seeing women who are wearing headscarves, men who have large beards, i.e. visible Muslims, standing hand in hand, literally, with those who are atheists and non-Muslims and others in defiance of ISIS and Al-Qaeda and other extremist organizations. So yes, on the one hand, we have this very sad reinforcement of, uh, the two extremes, but then there's a reason why we haven't had a mass backlash because most people's encounter with their Muslims here are, uh, you know, as postmen, as doctors, as nurses, as lawyers, as politicians, and they know that the lived reality of being Muslim in Europe is different from, you know what is it? 500 of the uh, young young extremists in Belgium have gone out. Well, there are 30 million Muslims in the West. 500 is a large number, but it's it's just it's, it's just too simple to say oh, it's because they're Muslims they went and joined ISIS. There are all kinds of other factors at play that often get whitewashed and ignored in the uh, in the world of sound bites and politics.
0: Yeah. So and you you had a terrific article yesterday in the Telegraph, the, the British newspaper. Uh, arguing essentially that Donald Trump is a gift to ISIL and to uh, violent Islamic extremists. Can you talk
1: about why you think Trump helps ISIL? For several reasons, Jacob. Firstly, that he confirms ISIS's reading of religion. The way in which Donald Trump talks about Islam as a religion of hatred, the way in which he talks about banning Muslims from the West, the way in which he talks about, um, quote-unquote, smashing ISIS, um, it's the rhetoric that ISIS and its various affiliates have articulated A, about themselves, and B, their reading of Islam is similar, that it's them and us worldview, it's the rejection of the West, and it's a belief in perennial conflict and perennial confrontation. And Donald Trump mirrors that and not only does he mirror it he goes one step further and suggests that most Muslims ordinary Muslims aren't in the business of either countering extremism or informing on those who are potentially murderers because that's what they are and I see, and I, I, I think that Donald Trump is a gift because he confirms ISIS's worldview and he does it with a much more amplified megaphone from the us uh, Republican presidential nomination campaign in a way that um, Isis could not have dreamed of when they were when they when they were conceived so um, several
0: years ago. So one of the absolutely shocking things Trump has said repeatedly is there are 1.6 billion Muslims in the world, and they hate us, or most of them hate us. He really does not distinguish in a, in a fundamental way between extremists and the vast bulk of, of Muslims around the world who are, of course, five, more than five times the population of the United States. But what was, what was your reaction to hearing him say that?
1: Well firstly it's 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 a shocking statement when I, I remember w- waking up in the morning and switching on the television and hearing is Islam hates us I mean it's uh, for, for an observant muslim and I'm not talking just about myself but you know 1.6 billion of us it's, it's something that doesn't sit well with our DNA or the way in which we see the world. I mean, firstly Islam is, isn't a religion of hate and I don't say that as a cliche, I say that as someone who was raised in the faith I mean, again and again, the Muslim exchange is one of, Assalamu Alaikum, peace be upon you, the Qur'an's 114 chapters 113 of them start with bismillah ar-Rahman rahim in the name of God, most compassionate most merciful, the Qur'an in, God describes himself repeatedly as ar-Rahman the, the merciful i mean i could go on and on uh, uh, on the emphasis on compassionate love and mercy that 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 moves through the mainstream muslim vein so to then say that islam hates us it just there's a, there's a total dissonance between muslim existence and approach from our from our faith and uh, the, the kind of ugly uh, portrayal of it now that said what's what's just factually wrong is that just look around US embassies in almost every Muslim country. There are long queues of young and old people wanting to go to the United States of America. Look at the American language schools in almost every Muslim capital. It's not the British Council that's popular. It's actually American language schools attached to embassies where young uh, Muslims across the world want to speak English but speak it in an American way. Look at the dress code of even people in in Gulf Arab countries or Take Saudi Arabia, supposedly a home of extremists. They're wearing baseball caps. Their upmarket restaurants include McDonald's. Their uh, satellite dishes are facing west because they're uh, receiving Hollywood movies. So the reality is that it's not that "quote unquote" Islam hates us. It's Islam and the and the West. If we're going to juxtapose them, have been civilizational competitors. But that's something good and not necessarily bad. And it's not that Islam hates us, but there is a tiny minority of a minority, a fringe of a fringe. Uh, that has political grievances with elements of the West that we ought to fix and identify and tackle rather than decimate and imply that an entire faith and an entire global community is complicit in, the, in, in that extreme of extremists.
0: And obviously, we're speaking in the wake of the Brussels attacks two days ago A- after the earlier Paris bombings. Um, I think there was some shock and also after the Charlie Hebdo attacks in Paris. Um, that we heard the voices of many Muslims who said, well, we, we don't s- support or sympathize with the attackers at all. But in some ways, in the Charlie Hebdo case, the, the, the people who were attacked had a coming. They provoked this, and you have to understand if you attack Islam in a certain way, this is what you get.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's not acceptable, that's not right, but, but there's a reason for that. And the sooner we understand the reason, the easier it becomes to uproot that mindset. Only 200 years ago here in the West, we had a civilization that was built on Christendom, and any insult on any of the Old Testament prophets was seen as blasphemy and necessary action was taken. Now, what we have in the vast majority of the Muslim world is blasphemy laws are still taken seriously. The way in which we are proved that thinking is through education, is through exposure, that in the West, blasphemy laws have no space. Just as we're free to proselytize, we're free to apostatize. But unless we get to that place of having these vibrant, dynamic debates of the freedom of expression and the freedom of religion, we won't have that kind of pluralist society that, that's needed for integration purposes, especially here in Europe. When Trump
0: makes these outrageous statements about hatred or, or about um, Muslim immigration or Muslims not being allowed in or Muslims being kicked out, are there different strains of reaction that you hear inside the Muslim community or is it all just basically universal revulsion?
1: I mean, revulsion is very strong, I think, Jacob. And I, People find it um, vulgar. People find it unbecoming. People find it odd that someone who's aiming for the highest office in the land would speak in such simplistic and outright ignorant terms. I mean, it's just shocking that that level of ignorance exists in someone who's cut deals with uh, Saudi princes, who's had business dealings in the Middle East, who aims to have his finger on America's nuclear button. I, I think most Muslims are complicated enough to see that he is not the only American. But that said, I suspect that at some point soon, ISIS or a similar extremist organization will cite Donald Trump's quotes from his speeches as examples of this clash of civilizations between Islam and the West because he does their work for them.
0: Ed Hussein is Senior Advisor at the Center on Religion and Geopolitics in London. Ed, thank you for joining me today on Trumpcast. Jacob, thank you for having me. That's it for today's episode of Trumpcast. Tell us what you think of the show by giving us a rating and review on iTunes. Don't forget to hit subscribe so you get every episode as soon as we release it. You can find me on Twitter at Jacob Wee. Trumpcast is produced by Henry Malovsky and Jason DeLeon.
2: Tell John Domenico to stop reading my tweets. They're mine. They're not his. He's using my voice. I mean, he's doing a great job, but seriously, stop doing that.
0: You can find him at johnnyd.net. Slate's executive producer is Steve Lichtai. Andy Bowers is our chief content officer. We'll leave you today on this clip from Dave Zirin's podcast, Edge of Sports, which combines sports, politics, and this week, comedy. Check it out at edgeofsportspodcast.com. Here's Dave talking to Judah Friedlander, who you know is the guy from 30 Rock with the trucker hats. I'm Jacob Weisberg. I'll talk to you next time
2: on Trumpcast. When Trump came out with the hat, make America great again, did you feel like he was stealing your material?
0: Yeah, and, and, and he probably was. you know, He's seen me around before. He probably knows uh, who I am or who are the people who do it. But here's my thing with Trump and his hats. First of all, terrible quality hats. Awful. You know, bad stitching, bad fabric on the hat. And secondly, his hats are red and white. It's like, what is he running for the President of Canada? <laughs> this is red, white, and blue. It's like he can't even get that right. And if the quality of his hats is going to be that poor, I think that's indicative of what he would be like as president. It's like, if that's the best he can do with a hat, what's he going to do with the country? How are you Mr. Pro-America and you make a Canadian hat? No offense to the Canadians, but just calling it like I see it. With awful stitching. Yeah, terrible. (laughs)